I've often thought about Jesus' last week here on earth and wondered what we would have experienced if we were one of those in Jerusalem that week. What would we have seen and what would we have felt? What was the attitude of the people towards Jesus during His last week on earth? Going back more than 2,000 years ago, Luke chapter 23 to 24 gives us a glimpse of the attitudes of the people towards Jesus and Jesus' attitudes toward them in return. I find three contrasting attitudes that couldn't be more different between the people and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's study these contrasting attitudes, which I hope will lead us to some life adjustments and applications. The first contrasting picture is found Friday mid-morning, as we read in Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 38. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Notice that the attitude of the people towards Jesus was one of mockery and and sneering. There was disdain in their voice. They were contemptuous against Jesus. This was an attitude of outright rebellion, rebellion against the Son of God, God Himself. And we call this rebellion sin. They willfully sinned against God. They mocked, they laughed at Him. Even on the sign, as verse 38 tells us, was written in three languages, mocking Him. This is the King of the Jews. Jews, this is your King. Look, He's on a cross. He can't even save Himself. They questioned his ability to save himself, which Easter would later disprove. But Christ could have come down from the cross at any time, but he chose not to come down from the cross in order to save us. And while the people sinned in rebellion against him, look at the attitude of our Lord in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. The request of God the Son, while they were mocking him, to God the Father, while Jesus was on the cross, was for God the Father to forgive them. Not only to forgive them, but with a disclaimer that they didn't know what they do. Is that true? You bet for sure they knew what they were doing. They even cast lots and divided his garments the very last earthly possessions of Jesus. Here you get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus, the heart of our Lord that day as He died for mankind, a heart that so loved His people, the ones He was going to save, that He forgave them for doing what they were doing. He would hold no grudge. You know, it's often been said, forgive and forget. But the reality is we can forgive, but it's very difficult to forget because it's simply something seared in our mind, especially if great wrong has been done. However, the Bible tells us when the Lord forgives, He remembers our sins no more. That means in His omniscience, while He remembers how we sin against Him, He doesn't use our sins and our wrongs against us anymore. Think about that. Think how hard it is to still remember, but to the extent of forgiveness, remembering no more, no longer using 
what you remember to hold it against us. That is the great love of our Lord for us when He died on the cross. The compassion and the love of our Lord is evident, especially while the jeers and the spit came. He said to each person who jeered Him, who spit at Him, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And He forgives each one of us as well. You see, the first contrasting attitude displayed in that last week of Jesus is that we sin against God, yet He forgives us. We sin against God, yet He forgives us. Listen to the story as Tim Hugh recounted in his book, Down to Earth, to see if you can do what the person in the story does. When Shannon Etheridge was just 16 years old, as an act of forgiveness and love would change her life forever. Driving to her high school one morning, Shannon struck and ran over Marjorie Jarstfar, who was riding her bicycle along a country road. Marjorie died and Shannon was found completely at fault by the authorities. Consumed by intense guilt, she contemplated suicide several times, but she never took her own life. Why? Because of the healing response of one man, Gary, Gary Jarstfar. Gary, Marjorie's husband, forgave the 16-year-old and asked the attorney to drop all charges against her. This saved her from an almost certain guilty verdict. Instead, he simply asked Shannon to continue in the godly footsteps that his wife had taken. You can't let this ruin your life, Gary told her more than 20 years ago. God wants to strengthen you. In fact, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy onto you. I'm passing Marjorie's spiritual legacy onto you. Gary's act of forgiveness showed Shannon the most amazing restorative love of God. That act became the foundation of her work, seeking to help people overcome guilt-ridden, wounded lives. Sometimes our greatest misery can become the foundation of our greatest ministry. This was seen in the life of Jesus. In the face of our sin, which to God must seem like hate and vitriol, He says to us, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive each one of you. And so that our greatest misery can become the foundation of our greatest ministry to the world to show that while we sin against God, yet He forgives us. We sin against Him, yet He forgives us. Look at the second contrasting picture of attitudes found in that last week of Jesus in verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and on the other on the left. They crucified Jesus Christ next to two bad criminals. It was their intention to force guilty by association. The Lord is with two other criminals, and so naturally, He must be one of them. He must be a criminal. And in verse 39, one of the robbers exemplifies this second contrasting attitude. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Here was a man who was dying by crucifixion as a punishment for his crimes against the Romans. And for him also to blaspheme Christ and to mock Christ, this is a reflection of an outward rejection of our Lord. And yet in the midst of the rejection of this criminal and so many throughout his ministry as exemplified by this criminal. Look at the picture of Christ 
in verses 44 to 46. And now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. In contrast to the attitude of rejection by the criminal, our Lord cried out in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm willfully dying, Jesus is saying. Now, a little theology. Jesus is fully God and fully human. So, no one, in a sense, killed Jesus because Jesus is God and God cannot die. Jesus had to die willingly. He had to die volitionally for the sins of mankind. And so, the Bible says He gave up His spirit and He died. This is important because it cannot be said of Him Someone forced him to die for the sins of mankind. Here we get another glimpse into the heart of our Lord. Here is the one who knew he to die in order to appease God's wrath and to bring fellowship between God and man. And so he willingly died for our sins. You see, the second contrasting attitude is that we reject him, yet he accepts us and willingly dies for us. We rejected him, we reject him, yet he accepts us and willingly dies for our sins. He was willing to suffer separation from God and have the sins of mankind put upon him. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you get that? For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. He took on the sins of the world that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, that we might receive righteousness. If it's very hard for you to sacrifice for others, how much more to die in their place? And all the more to die for those who reject you. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Peter Kreft writes, God's mercy goes beyond justice. It does not undercut. If I forgive you $100 debt you owe me, that means I must use $100 of my own money to pay my creditors. I cannot really make you $100 richer without making myself $100 poorer. If the debt is objectively real, it must be paid. If it is my mercy that repays your debt, I must pay it. That is the reason why Christ had to die. Why God could not simply say, forget it. Instead, He said, forgive it. And meant it that if we did not pay it, He had Himself pay it with His own life, which He did to His Son. When we gain something, the Son of God, God Himself, had to lose something, and He lost His life so that we might gain eternal life. My friends, if you've ever felt rejected by your parents, rejected by people who love you, rejected by your friends, let me tell you, our Lord knows what it means to be rejected. He was rejected by everyone, including His own family during the first part of His ministry. His family thought He was crazy. So because Jesus knows rejection, He understands acceptance He accepts us to the point of enabling that acceptance through dying for us 
to pay the debt of our sin. The great preacher G. Campbell Morgan was one of 150 young men who sought entrance into the ministry in 1888. He passed the doctrinal examination, but then faced the trial sermon in a cavernous auditorium that could seat more than a thousand people sat three ministers and 75 others who would come to listen and judge him on his preaching skills. When G. Campbell Morgan stepped onto the pulpit with that vast room and those searing critical eyes, it caught up to him and he fell short. Two weeks later, Morgan's name appeared among the 105 rejected for the ministry that year. G. Campbell Morgan wired to his father that one word, rejected, and sat down to write in his diary, very dark everything seems, still God knoweth best. You can sense Morgan's despair to be rejected, but quickly came the reply, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, dad. In later years, Morgan said, God said to me, in the weeks of loneliness and darkness that followed, I want you to cease making plans for yourself and let me plan your life. Rejection is rarely permanent, as G. Campbell Morgan goes on to prove, becoming a great preacher. Even in this life, circumstances change, and ultimately, there is no rejection of those accepted by Jesus Christ. Rejected on earth accepted on heaven. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He accepted every one of us, every person of every ethnicity, of every gender, of every age. Jesus Christ accepted us when He died on the cross for our sins. Look at the exchange between the other criminal and our Lord. Look at chapter 23, verse 40. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our Lord holds no grudges doesn't say to the other, convince your other friend to take back what he said about me. And when both of you trust me, then I will save you. What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. I accept you. I'm going to die for your sins. You may have lived a sinful life all throughout your life, but you have placed your trust in me. I will die for your sins. I will save you. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ, or you have rejected Him in the past. Remember, He is willing to die for you and has died for your sins so that you will not suffer eternal punishment and judgment. The Bible tells us that our sin and the wages of our sin is death. But Jesus Christ died on our behalf so that we do not pay the penalty of the price of our sin. He still accepts us and He always will. His willing death on the cross shows that He will save and accept each one of you. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you are doing. In a way, Jesus doesn't care. He will accept you for who you are and He invites you to place your trust in Him. 
for eternal life. Now look with me at the third contrasting picture of our Lord and the people found in chapter 23, verse 49, and then chapter 24, verses 36 to 40. I read from chapter 23, verse 49. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Many of the disciples and Jesus' followers were hiding. They were following from a distance. And they were following from a distance for a wide variety of reasons. Some of them, like Peter, were ashamed. They were scared. Some, like Judas, had betrayed him. Most were simply living in fear. They saw what had happened to Jesus. He was arrested. He was crucified. And those associated with him would perhaps suffer the same thing. And so they hid. There was an attitude of fear. They hid from him. Many guilty, perhaps, of really letting him down. But the contrasting attitude is in the next chapter when Jesus conquers death and has resurrected. And it begins to appear to many of his disciples, which we'll talk about on Sunday. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Here we see an invitation for the disciples to draw near to him. The contrasting attitude is this. We hid from him. And yet He invites us to Himself. We hid from Him, and yet He invites us to Himself. This is an invitation from our Lord to come and see, to come and see Him, to experience Him, to fellowship with Him. This invitation has been a part of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. He invites the children to come to see Him, to be with Him. He invites the infirm, the sick, the sinner to be with Him. And there is no more a profound invitation to those who had rejected Him, those who had hidden from Him at His time of greatest need. He says, I forgive you. I forgive you. I died in your place. I forgive you. Come, embrace me. Come and fellowship with me. That would lead to Peter's restoration. You know, sometimes we forget that there is an open invitation for Jesus to come and fellowship with us. He wants us to be with Him. We should not be ashamed because of what we've done. His death on the cross says, I've forgiven you. Come, I invite you to be with me. I remember the story of a group of Moravian missionaries who once decided to take the message of God to the Eskimos. One of their struggles in, in teaching the message of God to the Eskimos was that they could not find the word in the Eskimo language for forgiveness. Finally, they had to come out with a compound phrase to use in place of forgiveness. And that compound phrase is this. I'm going to have trouble pronouncing it, but I'm going to give it a try. It's, it's sumagi jujung nainemik. Can you imagine saying that quickly, ten times? Isuma jijujung nanemik. It's a formal-looking assembly of 
litters in this very long word, but the expression has a beautiful connotation of those who understand it, of those who understand what it means, and it means this, not being able to think about it anymore, not being able to think about it anymore. Isn't that a beautiful concept of forgiveness? And that's why God invites us to Himself, because He doesn't think upon our sins anymore. He sees us as people who can be saved and are saved when we place our trust in Him because He died for our sins. So my friends, do not hide from the Lord. There is an open invitation for us to accept His love, to be His children, for us to identify with Him, to be in intimate relationship with Him. In Ernest Hemingway's book, The Capital of the World, he writes about a short story of a boy and his father. And here in this often told short story is every man's desire, every woman's desire, deep in their heart for forgiveness and acceptance. This story revolves around a father and his teenage son, Paco. And this is set in Spain. Paco is an extremely common name in Spain at that time. With a desire to become a matador and to escape his father's control, Paco runs away to the capital from which the title of the book is derived, in Spain, in Madrid. His father is desperate to reconcile with his son and follows him to Madrid and puts an ad in the local newspaper with these simple words. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Hemingway then writes, the next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos all seeking or desiring forgiveness from their father. My friends, the world is full of people in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. The model for such forgiveness is most profoundly found in Jesus Christ. God writes to us as well. Dear friends, He says, meet me anytime, even today. I'm waiting for you. I have paid your penalty for sin through my death and resurrection. All is forgiven. I love you. Come, let us be together, Jesus Christ. How would you respond to the invitation of Jesus? Have you responded to this invitation? Because it was His death for your life. His death enables us to have a relationship with God again. Remember the three contrasting attitudes between the people and of Christ during Jesus' last week on earth. We sin against Him, yet He forgives us. We reject Him, yet He dies for our sins. We hid from Him, yet He invites us to Himself. Now, some of you may say, I don't do that. I haven't sinned against Him. I haven't rejected Him. I, ha- I haven't hidden myself from Him. But, you know, we're all guilty of these attitudes. We are just as guilty, Christians or non-Christians alike, with having these same attitudes as the people of Jerusalem in that last week of Jesus' life. We willfully disobey. That is sin. We sin against Him. We reject Him. 
when we put our lives ahead of His, our needs, our desires ahead of His, the Lord has no part in our daily walk. He is irrelevant to us. That is rejection. We hid from Him. We don't intentionally do it at times. We just don't have enough time for Him. We don't have enough time to come out to meet Him. Christian or non-Christian, we are guilty of these things. And so we should remember, He died for us. He forgave us. So once again, we can answer His invitation for us to be in relationship with Him. You see, my friends, it's not about us. It's always been about Christ and what He did. This is the attitude of many, unfortunately today, as exemplified by this illustration. I want to take a minute to tell you all how awesome I am. For the last 10 years, a good friend of mine has been working three jobs to pay for a life-saving medical procedure that I need. He sacrificed buying anything for himself so that I could have life. He worked over 75,000 hours with very little sleep to save $1.5 million dollars And to my surprise, he came over last night and presented me with this cash gift. And I accepted this gift so that I could pay for my life-saving medical procedure. So the whole point of this story is not to tell you how awesome my friend is, but to tell you how awesome I am for accepting the gift. I paid for the gift when I accepted it. I'm so awesome What my friend did is actually worthless. It was my accepting of that cash gift that's really special and valuable and boastworthy. That's all I want to tell you. I'm so awesome. That's the attitude of so many today. Jesus did the work, but I'm so awesome for receiving it. It's all about me. No, 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 my friends. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is awesome and wonderful for doing what He did. And I am humbled because by grace I can receive this free gift of salvation. The focus is not on us. The focus is on the Savior. In the last week of Jesus, the focus should not be on the attitude of the people, how horrible it is, It should be focused upon the attitude of Jesus and His great love for us. Christ's death should challenge us to have a changed life, a changed focus from what we used to be, sinful, to what we are, new creations in Christ. And that's the great news I bring to you, not on this Good Friday, but on this greatest Friday of all history Let us remember Christ's forgiveness, His death on the cross for our sins, His genuine invitation for us to meet Him and to change our focus to Him. His death for my life. How then will you live your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for reminding us that it's not about me. It's about You It's about what you did on the cross to save all of mankind. If there are those who have not placed their trust in you, perhaps they feel that they're too sinful that you cannot save them. Perhaps they've done things that 
they believe is so horrible that you cannot save them. Help them to understand that when you died on the cross, you paid for all sins. With your everlasting love, you invite us to be in relationship with you as sinners. And so I pray that those who have not placed their trust in you would do so. And for those of us who have, I pray that we would live transformed lives in view of the cross, in view of what you have done. Help us to go forth and live lives that truly reflect the new creation that we are in Christ. To have lives that are changed so that the world can see there is a difference when one recognizes and realizes and lives out the truth that they are sinners yet saved by grace. Father, I pray that you would challenge in hearts those who have heard your word and challenge their hearts to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.